You can listen to our new audiobook, I Trust When Dark My Road, A Lutheran View of Depression. It's voiced by the book's author, Pastor Todd Peppercorn, and includes an introduction voiced by Pastor Matt Harrison, President of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Just go to issuesetc.org, enter your email address, and we'll send you a link to the audiobook, I Trust When Dark My Road, A Lutheran View of Depression, issuesetc.org, and enter your email address. The new left has consistently been anti-humane since the 1960s, and I think they want so deeply to remake the human person in their image that they're willing to run over acres and acres of bodies to get there. You wouldn't tell someone in 1860s U.S. who's fighting for abolition, oh, don't be a culture warrior. No, you'd say that's great. It's good that we should be fighting against the abomination of slavery. But in the same way, you also wouldn't want them to ignore spiritual reality only for the sake of anything political. One of the things that is perhaps becoming more and more obvious in our contemporary context is an awful lot of people who have perhaps sat in church every Sunday of their lives do not always know what God considers pleasing. So our prayer for Israel is not only that the war that is currently ravaging that region would come to an end, but we pray that their war against the Messiah would be brought to an end so that they can be grafted back into the olive tree that they were broken off of because of their unbelief. Colorado trumpet players love issues, etc. and likely will dominate the news cycle for weeks to come. The Israel-Hamas war, which is, you hear the media coverage, they say it's stretched on now for a week as though we expect it to be over with in a day or two, and it's barely begun. Now, for many, it's simply a geopolitical event. But for many evangelicals, it's kind of what they've been waiting for. They don't want the war, don't get me wrong, but they think it's the fulfillment of biblical prophecy, and they think that it heralds the approach of Christ's return. How do you evaluate those views? Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in live on this Friday afternoon, the 13th of October. It's This Week in Pop Christianity. We'll talk about evangelical reaction to the Israel-Hamas war. Pastor Chris Roseborough is our guest, pastor of Consfinger Lutheran Church in Oslo, Minnesota, and creator and host of the YouTube channel Fighting for the Faith. Chris, welcome back. Thanks for having me back, Todd. What is the predominant view in pop Christianity uh, regarding the nation state of Israel? So their predominant view is that the nation state of Israel is going to play a pivotal and central role in end times eschatology, and that God has restored the genetic descendants of Israel, put them back in the region where the Bible stories take place, the, the promised land, and that all of this is an anticipation for their central role in a millennial kingdom as well as the central role in what's coming after the rapture or immediately before the rapture with a, a mass conversion of the Jews to Christianity and the focus then going off of the Gentiles in the church and being put back on by God onto uh, th those who are genetically descended from Abraham. So it's safe to say that even if they don't have a sophisticated kind of dispensational theology framework behind the belief, the average 
Christian, Pop American Christianity would say that the nation state of Israel in some way is either a fulfillment of prophecy or a significant player in God's end times goals. That is absolutely correct. And then with the reestablishing of the nation state of Israel back in 1948, evangelicals have been on high alert really believing that that is the sign that uh, we have entered the very last of the last of the last days. How many times, I mean, obviously you can't calculate every time, but rhetorically, how many times have they been proven wrong in their predictions regarding something going on in the Middle East? Uh, every time. <laughs> uh, that's the best way I can put it, is that it's they've been proven wrong every time. And this has to do with really the dangers of a bad eschatology that doesn't have Christ as the center of it. And as a result of it, they have departed from the way the historic church has understood the eschatological text from the New Testament and those of the Old Testament as well. In fact, when you read Isaiah, when you read Ezekiel, when you read some of the other prophets, there are notable prophecies in relation to the end of times and the new earth and what will be happening in the days immediately before the return of Christ. And those have to be interpreted with the lens that we now have of the New Testament, that Christ is the center and the substance, and that some of the missing interpretive keys of the Old Testament prophecies are legitimately given to us by God the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. And to ignore those interpretive keys is to engage, in a sense, a a folly-filled eschatology that creates fear and anxiety, and that legitimately doesn't make any Christian doctrinal theological sense, which is the best way I can describe charitably the eschatology of so many evangelicals today. How should we rightly understand the history of the existence of the state of Israel? So the current state of Israel, it's important that we make biblical distinctions. And one of the primary distinctions is actually given to us in Scripture. When you read, for instance, Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11, I'm not going to read them all out here. I'm going to refer your your listeners to go ahead and open up your Bible, read that passage. There are some very important distinctions that are made that kind of help us out. And so the Apostle Paul, in the opening portion of Romans 9, laments that many of those whom he is genetically related to, those who share his same race, his same flesh, that he laments the fact that they do not believe in Christ. And so he asks a question, has the word of God failed? And the answer in that he gives is interesting. He says, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. And then he takes a passage from Genesis, and he says, it is through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And so when we take a look at like Romans 9, 10, 11, you also look at the tail end of Galatians chapter 3. Let me read that one out because that's kind of important as well. At the very end of Galatians chapter 3, the apostle Paul says, if you are Christ's, if you are a Christian, you are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to the promise. 
So the idea then here is, is that genetics doesn't give you an inside track with God. Now, it is absolutely true that in Romans 11, God specifically says through the Apostle Paul that those who are genetically descended from Abraham are beloved, but they're currently under a curse because of their unbelief. And so we as Christians are not to be arrogant towards people who are genetically Jewish who are do not believe in Jesus Christ. Instead, we have to recognize that in God's sight they are beloved for the sake of the patriarchs. But all that being said, a proper hermeneutic, biblically, is to recognize that the Israel of note is not the genetic Israel. And this is the primary thrust of Paul's argument when he notes that in the times of Elijah, Elijah cried out to God against Israel because they had gone whole hog into idolatry. And so when we look at the modern nation state of Israel today, they are not a Christian nation. They are still holding on to the religion that was created during the intertestamental period, which is the religion of the Pharisees. So Orthodox Judaism is legitimately the theological, I don't want to say child, but it's the same, it's the same theology. It's the same theology that Jesus repudiated. That theology that created their own traditions, their own commandments, and by doing so, they made void the word of God. And so when you take a look at the scriptures, clearly relating to what went wrong at the time of Christ, is that they had abandoned the true commandments of God. Instead, they embraced the false teaching and the extra-biblical doctrines of the Pharisees in the form of what was called the tradition of the elders, which then was later written down in the Talmuds. And this whole tradition that they claim, this extra revelation that God apparently had given to Moses on Mount Sinai, Christ flat out repudiates the whole thing and saying that these are the traditions of men, and Christ even wouldn't let his disciples obey the commands of the tradition of the elders of the Talmuds. And so there's a big conflict here. And then ultimately, God punishes Israel for their unbelief by exacting on them the final clauses of the curses portion of the Mosaic Covenant, which is found in Deuteronomy 28, where they are legitimately sieged and they end end up engaging in cannibalism as God promised them they would experience if they persisted in their unbelief. And then ultimately he destroyed the temple and then kicked them out of the land. This was all because of their rejection of God. And so you'll note that the religion of modern-day Israel is the religion of the Pharisees. It is not the same religion that Abraham followed, that Isaac and Jacob and Israel and Joseph and Moses and Joshua after him and Samuel and the prophets. In fact, when I read the commentaries, good commentaries, always make a distinction between Pharisaical Judaism, which is a different religion altogether, and the religion of the patriarchs of the Old Testament. They oftentimes refer to that religion as Yahwehism. And Christianity is the fulfillment of Yahwehism. And we learn from the New Testament that our faith in Christ is the same faith that Abraham had as well. He looking forward to the promised Messiah, we looking back to the promises of the Messiah fulfilled in Christ. And so the nation state of Israel as we know it today is not the Israel of note in God's eyes. The Israel of note in God's eyes is believing Israel. And whether you are a Jew or a Gentile, whether you are a descendant of Abraham 
or you come from one of the other tribes of the earth, everybody who believes in Christ is grafted into Israel, and that then becomes the major interpretive key to understanding eschatology and then understanding some of the prophecies regarding the end times that are found in the Old Testament. But because evangelicals have lost sight of this and are so focused on the genetic nation-state of Israel today, they make some huge theological and doctrinal blunders as they read the biblical text. And as a result of it, whenever there's a conflict in Israel, they get their eschatological hopes up that this is it, this is the thing that we should be looking for. When in reality, the current conflict there. It's, there are no biblical prophecies pointing to that conflict. It's just one of the things that Christ told us to look forward to, you know, as would be expected during the, the last times which we've been in since his ascension. There will be wars and rumors of wars. Yes, that's happening right now, but this current conflict has no prophecies that it's actually connected to. Well, we're first going to hear from Greg Laurie. Who is he again? So Greg Laurie is a well-known Calvary Chapel pastor. He's uh, the pastor of Calvary Chapel in Riverside, California. He's the guy who put together the Jesus Revolution movie, was a, a close associate of Chuck Smith when he was alive. We're going to be listening to a, two sound bites from him from this past Sunday, where he spends time during his sermon commenting on the current affairs happening in Israel. The Bible predicted thousands of years ago that the end time events would revolve around Jerusalem. Not Irvine, not Riverside, not San Francisco, not Los Angeles, not Moscow, not Paris, but Jerusalem, this tiny little city in this tiny sliver of land will play a key role in the events of the last days. It's the focal point of end times events. It's amazing when you think about it because in Zechariah 12, God says, I will make Jerusalem and Judah like an intoxicating drink to all the nearby nations that send their armies to besiege Jerusalem. On that day, I'll make Jerusalem a heavy stone, a burden for the world, and none of the nations who try will be able to lift it. Now, the irony of all of this is the United States of America through the Biden administration just gave $6 billion to Iran. What a bad move that is. What a bad move it is to give any money to this nation that sponsors terrorism around the world. But here's where it gets interesting for students of Bible prophecy. The Bible tells us in the end times that Israel would be scattered and regathered. This has happened. You want to talk about signs of the times, the super sign of the last days, and really the sign that sets the prophetic clock ticking is the regathering of the nation Israel into their homeland. On the heels of the Holocaust, who would have ever thought that these Jewish people who lost six million uh, of their people uh, to the Nazis would somehow regather in their homeland, but it happened against all odds. And on May 14th, 1948, Israel became a nation. I'm proud to say the United States was the first nation to acknowledge that. Okay, Chris. So he made an assertion at the very beginning that the focal point of end times prophecy would be Jerusalem. How did he attempt to back that up? So you'll note that, uh, and this is a thing that I've been noticing from all of the evangelicals who are trying to make hay with the current conflict in Israel, 
is that they will reference biblical texts to say that those texts say something, but they don't actually read them out. It's actually quite annoying when they do this because they're not paying attention to the context. They're just making an assertion and then saying these events are the focal point of everything. So, for instance, one of the things I strongly recommend, if you, and, and I know that you've promoted this on your program before, is that the people in your audience get a copy of the Lutheran Study Bible. It's fantastic. The notes in there are just scholarly beyond all reason, and they have a good eye towards the, how the Church has historically understood biblical text by understanding how the Church Fathers play into this as well. So, for instance, if you were to go to Zechariah 12, which is the passage that Greg Laurie referenced, and you were to look at what this text is about. So we can read a portion of it, and here's the portion he was making mention of. And it says, The oracle of the word of Yahweh concerning Israel. Thus declares Yahweh, who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. Behold, I am about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. The siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. On that day I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves, and all the nations of the earth will gather against it. On that day, declares Yahweh, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness, but for the sake of the house of Judah, I will keep my eyes open when I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. Then the clans of Judah shall say to themselves, the inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord of hosts their God. And in this same text, then in this context, it says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps for a firstborn. So you're going to note there's a legitimate Christological connection to the passage that he made reference to. And here's the thing. When it comes to these types of prophetic text, you have to unpack it. You have to figure out what each of the things is referring to. So here's what I love about the Lutheran Study Bible is it legitimately says this to help us understand this text. It says, The day is coming, declares the Lord, when the enemies of his people represented here by Jerusalem and Judah will be destroyed. When confronted by spiritual foes who cause us to feel weak and helpless, we must keep telling ourselves that our strength is in the one who stretched out the heavens and found in the earth. He will protect and he will save us. So now that Christ has come, you have to read these texts through the lens of Christ, and merely somehow saying that this text is just pointing to Jerusalem as if somehow a group of genetic Jews who deny Christ as the Messiah would somehow be the focal point of God's comfort, that makes no sense at all. So we have to interpret it through the New Testament that teaches us that the true Israel are those who believe in Christ, which is why then the Lutheran Study Bible points out that Jerusalem here is not to be understood as the literal Jerusalem, but is a stand-in for those who trust in Christ, because our capital is the heavenly Jerusalem, and our king is King Jesus. And that's why the remainder of the text that makes it such an overt prophecy regarding the, the return of Christ and people weeping over those the one whom they have pierced. But he's not giving us a meaningful 
understanding of this. He's just making reference to it and saying this is what this is referring to. And so Jerusalem's going to be the focus of everything, when in reality, the focus of Scripture is on Christ and his church, either in the Old Testament or the New. And unfortunately, evangelical eschatology keeps people from understanding those connections correctly. That's Chris Rosebrough is responding to evangelical reaction to the Israel-Hamas war after the break. Greg Laurie will take us into his version of Ezekiel 37-38. This week on The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, we are rolling right along in our adventures in Acts with Festus shares with Agrippa, Paul brought before Agrippa, Paul's defense before Agrippa, Paul's conversion yet again, and not disobedient to the heavenly vision. Join me, Pastor Will Whedon, for the word of the Lord endures forever, your daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study on demand. Listen at thewordendures.org or your favorite podcast provider. Does this sound like your church budget process at the end of the year? You get last year's budget and go through with a committee line by line, maybe what we should spend next year. Maybe you have a prayer. But where's the word of God in this process? When do the people hear what the small catechism says about giving and why we do it? Contact us at LCMS Stewardship so that we can help you fix this process, put the word of God first, and put your congregation on a good fitting. LCMS.org slash stewardship. A voice in the wilderness of American evangelicalism. You're listening to Issues Etc. Traditional liturgical worship, it's so much more than a style preference. It reflects transcendence in the divine service. The living God comes to us in real space and time through the word and sacraments. Hi, this is Pastor Nigel Brown from Hope Lutheran Church in Hampton, Virginia. If you're looking for reverent worship and serious Bible study, look us up. We're in Hampton with Bible studies in Hampton and Williamsburg. We celebrate the divine service with communion every Sunday. Check us out at hopehampton.org. Teaching your student to read should not be complicated. Memoria Press's phonics uses common sense and the classical approach with their First Start Reading program for the most effective and efficient way to teach your child how to read. If you're interested in learning more, visit them at memoriapress.com and use the coupon code LPR24 at checkout. Memoria Press, saving Western civilization one student at a time. The theology of glory is poison to all Christians, but it is perhaps most injurious to those with mental health problems. Its basic message is emotional distress is due to weak faith. As Luther did, continually condemn this heretical teaching. As Luther did, console those in distress by reminding them that Christ bore all sins on the cross. That's from the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for October, Martin Luther on Mental Health. You can browse before you buy at our website, issuesetc.org, or call Concordia Publishing House and order Martin Luther on Mental Health, 1-800-325-3040, 1-800-325-3040. Ask for the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for October. It's This Week in Pop Christianity. We're getting evangelical reaction to the Israel-Hamas war. Pastor Chris Roseborough is our guest. Chris, what's next? 
So now we're going to hear him making a reference to Ezekiel chapters 37 and 38, and we're going to have to unwind what he's doing with these texts as well. But God said she'll be regathered, and then the Lord said she would come under attack. And specifically in Ezekiel 37 and 38, the Bible speaks of the regathering of Israel, and then it speaks of a large force from her north attacking her. That force is identified as Magog. Who is Magog? Listen, no one can say with absolute certainty. But many, many Bible students and prophecy teachers believe it's modern day Russia. I think you can make a very good case for that. If you get out a map of the Middle East and look to the north of Israel, you will find Russia. Why would Russia ever want to invade Israel? Well, there's another thing the Bible says about Magog, if she is indeed Russia, and that one of her allies that will march with her is Persia. Persia is the ancient name for modern Iran. So the Bible predicted hundreds of years ago that this large force from the north of Israel would attack her after she was regathered and one of the allies that would attack Israel with Mother Russia or Magog, whoever it is, would be Iran or Persia. And it's only recently that the Iranians and the Russians have developed a special connection. Not once in the past 2,500 years has Russia formed a military alliance with Persia, Iran, but they have now signed a billion dollar deals uh, to some missiles to Iran, and the Iranians have helped the Russians, providing them with uh, drones, weaponized drones to use in the Ukraine war. You probably heard about that. And uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu said of this, Iran and Russia are very disturbing to us. Iran supplying Russia with drones, Russia helping Iran with nuclear weapons. The only way to stop Iran is with a credible military threat. So how do you stop something like this? Literally, there are hostages from Israel, old women, little children, uh, young women, and soldiers as well, because these civilians were actually targeted in this attack. How do you deal with this? It's very tricky. Let's just say for the sake of a point that Israel decided to strike out at Iran, specifically, because they're funding all of this. What would that produce? Well, it could produce, it could produce a conflict we read about in Ezekiel where suddenly, because the Bible says that Magog will come against her will, the Bible describes hooks in her jaws, pulling her forward, almost as though Magog is coming in reluctantly along with her ally, Persia or Iran. I'm not saying this is gonna lead to the Ezekiel 37, 38 scenario, but I'm saying it's very interesting. If you get up in the morning and read this headline, Russia attacks Israel, fasten your seatbelt. You're seeing Bible prophecy fulfilled in your lifetime in real time before your very eyes. So what should we do in light of all of this? Jesus said, when you see these things begin to happen, freak out because you're dead in the water. Well, he didn't say that, did he? He said, when you see these things begin to happen, look up because your redemption is drawing near. That's what we need to be doing, looking up. So Chris, we can wholeheartedly agree with the sentiment that he expressed there at the very end. It's the these things right. that we would disagree with. He wants to say specifically the attack by Hamas on the nation state of Israel is part of these things. 
Right. That and that's the big problem because he took Jesus's words out of context. In fact, the the very things that Jesus was pointing to were the things that he listed out in the Olivet discourse in Matthew chapter 24 not the things that are prophesied and spoken of in Ezekiel 37 and 38. And this requires us to actually take a close look at what is in Ezekiel 37 and 38, and how are we to make sense of it. So Ezekiel 37 begins with that famous text of the Valley of the Dry Bones, where Ezekiel is brought to a valley which is full of bones, like a great army had perished there, and God asks him, can these bones live? And and Ezekiel kind of demurs and says, well, you know, Lord, you know. And then God commands him to prophesy to the bones and prophesy then to the breath, and the whole army comes alive. But God himself gives the interpretation of this vision itself, and it doesn't have to do with the establishing of the nation-state of Israel, which will then be pursued and attacked by an enemy from the north. Instead, listen to what it says. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up, our hope is lost, we are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am Yahweh when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land, and then you shall know that I am Yahweh, I have spoken, and I will do it, declares Yahweh. So the first part of Ezekiel 37 is not about God re-resurrecting the nation-state of Israel. This is about God promising the resurrection from the dead, and we get a foretaste of that as Christians when we are regenerated by the powerful working of God the Holy Spirit in the waters of baptism through the preaching of the gospel. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We get a foretaste of what is being spoken of here, that first resurrection that we experience because we hear the gospel. And again, you have to interpret Israel through the New Testament lens. This is referring to those who who believe, who truly have faith in Yahweh. And then the second part of it is a stick prophecy. Ezekiel does these things that God tells him to do. These are kind of played out prophecy where he takes two sticks and puts them together and they will become one. And then you'll note that this is a prophecy about God remaking Israel But even then, this isn't talking about the current nation-state of Israel, because it says regarding that Israel that God will establish, and I will make them one nation in the land, on the mountain of Israel, and one king shall be king over them all, and they shall no longer be two nations, no longer divided into two kingdoms. They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols, their detestable things, or with any of their transgressions, but I will save them from all their backslidings in which they have sinned, and I will cleanse them, and they shall be my people and I will be their God. My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. This is an eschatological promise that points to God basically in the new earth establishing us in the land, and I can legitimately say that the nation-state of Israel currently, based on the latest religious polls that they've taken, only 2% of their population believes that Jesus is the Messiah. But the promise that is given in the second part of Ezekiel 37 makes it clear that Christ would be king over all of that nation and that they would no longer sin anymore. Again, this is an eschatological promise, and to somehow 
take this and appropriate it to the regathering of the people of Israel in the nation that was established in 1948 is a misappropriation of the text. Pastor Chris Roseborough is our guest. It's This Week in Pop Christianity. Today, evangelical reaction to Israel-Hamas war. On the other side, a question about whether or not Lori has a specific prophecy. Right now, many churches are planning their budgets for the next fiscal year. You can promote your confessional Lutheran church and support the worldwide outreach of issues, etc. by becoming a congregational sponsor. When your church pledges $1,000, we'll publicize your congregation on the podcast, at our website, and in the Issues Etc. journal. Learn more on the Support Donate page at issuesetc.org. Don't miss your congregation's budget deadline. Become an Issues Etc. congregational sponsor. The Lutheran Church Missouri Synod cares deeply for those who protect our nation. Are you or a loved one currently serving? Ministry to the Armed Forces would like to help. We provide devotional literature to encourage faith. Send your mailing address to lcmschaps at lcms.org or call us at 314-996-1337. Those in uniform are comforted with Psalm 28. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in Him and He helps me. More topics, more guests, more Jesus. You're listening to Issues Etc. Have you ever wondered about some of the more difficult topics or teachings of Scripture, such as what does the Bible say about polygamy or slavery or the free will, or what about law and gospel? The October issue of The Lutheran Witness is a twin to the August 2022 issue, and it takes up some of these difficult teachings of Scripture and explains them in detail. To get your copy, visit cph.org witness or the Lutheran Witness website witness.lsms.org. The Lutheran Witness, interpreting the world from a Lutheran perspective. Are you looking for an investment that aligns with your Lutheran values? Look no further than Lutheran Church Extension Fund. Hi, my name is Rahima Kavuga, Director of Synod Relations at LCEF, and we're proud to be an entity of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, which means our focus is clear. When you invest with LCEF, you're helping LCMS-supported ministries and dedicated church workers. Learn more at lcef.org. Welcome back. I'm Todd Wilkin. It's This Week in Pop Christianity. We're talking about evangelical reaction to the Israel-Hamas war. Pastor Chris Roseborough is our guest. So Chris, it sounds like Greg Laurie doesn't really have a specific prophecy regarding the Israel-Hamas war. He's kind of making the argument that we should see this as adjacent to a specific prophecy. Yeah, that is a good way of putting it. But the issue is, again, he didn't read a text. He's not actually exegeting it. He's making a reference to it, and it's basically saying that 37 has to do with the regathering of Israel, and then 38 would be then some kind of attack from the enemies of the north. And I'll, I'll grant that Ezekiel 38 is a little bit of a complicated prophecy. And thankfully, God the Holy Spirit has given us a, a way of interpreting it from the New Testament. So, like, for instance, if I read just the beginning portion 
of chapter 38 of the Gog Magog prophecy. It says, The word of Yahweh came to me, Son of man, set your face toward Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Meshech and Tubal, and prophesy against them, and say, Thus says the Lord Yahweh, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, chief of prince of Meshech and Tubal, and I will turn you about and put hooks in your jaws, and I will bring you out and all of your army, horses and horsemen, all of them clothed in full armor, a great host, all of them with buckler and shield, wielding swords, Persia, Cush, and Put are with them, all of them with shield and helmet, Gomer and all of his hordes, Beth Torgama from the uttermost parts of the north with all of his hordes, and many peoples are with you. Be ready and keep ready, you and your hosts that are assembled about you, and be a guard for them. So basically he's describing this huge force, multi-coalition, multinational force, that's going to wage war against Israel. And I have to put it in air quotes, the reason being is because we have a biblical text from the New Testament that makes reference to Ezekiel 38 and helps us understand what this is. So in the book of Revelation, chapter 20, starting at verse 7, it says this, When the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison, and he will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth. Gog and Magog to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. So we learn then the whole Gog-Magog prophecy of Ezekiel 38 Although in Ezekiel it mentions Israel, the book of Revelation chapter 20 makes it clear that this is, for lack of a better way of putting it, Satan's last-ditch, all-out war against the saints of Christ immediately before the actual return of Christ. The Gog-Magog battle is not about Russia attacking the current nation-state of Israel. It's about the nations of the earth persecuting the saints and one last push from the devil himself getting these nations to do his bidding to eradicate Christianity off the face of the earth. That's what Revelation 20 is saying. So by ignoring the cross-references, ignoring the fact that the Gog-Magog battle of Revelation 20 specifically identifies the saints as the target, what Greg Laurie is doing is what so many evangelicals do. Now they're super hyper-focused on the nation-state of Israel rather than being focused in on Christ and what he's done for us and the comfort that we have from the clear eschatological text that God is going to save and preserve his saints even in the midst of Satan's all-out attack. And when Satan finally attacks for the final way, it'll result in Christ returning and Satan being thrown into the lake of fire and tormented forever. We'll finally be done with all of this. And so good eschatology comforts us and gives us hope in the midst of very scary circumstances that are listed there. But the whole theme of the book of Revelation is the patient endurance of the saints. And we can have that because of the promises associated with it. Who are we going to hear from next? A very famous evangelical evangelist by the name of Tiff Shuttlesworth. He was recently the special speaker at a place called Charleston Church, in fact, just over the weekend. And uh, he took the occasion of his sermon to preach the entire sermon on what's coming next as a result of uh, the attack in Israel. The Gog-Magog War is probably the next major war 
that will be on planet earth. It will occur potentially before the rapture, perhaps after the rapture, or maybe in full swing when the rapture takes place. But the battle of Armageddon, the greatest war against Israel, does not take place until the end of the tribulation. If you're a new student of the Bible, the tribulation period is found in the book of Revelation, beginning at chapter 6 and ending in chapter 19. And it ends with the second coming of Christ returning with the armies of the Lord. We read about that in Revelation 19, verses 11 through 16. There the Bible said, Then I saw heaven opened, and a white horse was standing there. Its rider was named Faithful and True, for he judges fairly and wages a righteous war. His eyes were like flames of fire, and on his head were many crowns. A name was written on him that no one understood except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his title was the Word of God. The armies of heaven dressed in the finest of pure white linen followed him on white horses, and from his mouth came a sharp sword to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will release the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty like juice flowing from a wine press. On his robe at his thigh was written this title, King of all kings and Lord of all lords. The rapture of the church is the next major prophetic event on the calendar of God, and immediately after the rapture is the beginning of the tribulation period that the Bible is detailed seven years exactly. And not by our calendar, but by the Hebraic calendar of 360 days. Okay, take that apart for us if you would, Chris. So at this point, now that Israel is back at war, I mean, the prophetic timeline apparently is is that we've got the Gog-Magog war, which could happen any time, and, and Shuttlesworth is in agreement with Greg Laurie and others that this is supposedly an attack that will include Iran allying with Russia and them attacking physical Israel either right after or immediately before the rapture and that the church is supposed to be just whoosh absconded away and as a result of that the church doesn't go through the last seven years of the tribulation and is spared God's wrath but now the religious and political focus of the world is all going to be focused specifically on the nation-state of Israel and its role that it's supposed to play in the seven-year tribulation, which none of these people actually agree on what that role is exactly going to be, but they believe that there'll be a revival within genetic Israel, and they'll all, you know, in mass become Christians, and that that will be the focus of everything. So how would you evaluate that? <laughs> it's completely convoluted. Uh, and and you're going to note that it doesn't make any sense. It the the whole thing doesn't make any sense because Christ is not the king or the object of worship of the nation state of Israel. That's just not the case right now. And I don't understand 
why they think that's supposed to change, but it doesn't make any sense. And on top of it, when you read the scriptures, Christians themselves are warned that if you're going to be beheaded, if you're going to die, then if you're going to be arrested, these are the things that are going to happen to Christians, and that Christ doesn't come back twice he only comes back once. So we believe that Jesus will return in glory to judge the living and the dead. And so in their eschatology, you have Jesus secretly returning before the seven-year tribulation, which, again, they're taking all of the numbers of the book of Revelation and interpreting them literally rather than noting that these numbers are not meant to be taken literally. They're figurative numbers. They're symbolic numbers that show something that has been in place legitimately since Christ's ascension, but they ignore all of that, and then they, they turn it into this literal seven years, and then they've got all this complicated timelines and all these political speculations as to how this is supposed to play out. And in so doing, they, they lose the entire plot, and the details don't make any sense. In fact, it seems very disjointed and doesn't make a, a lick of sense at all. Why would Jesus come back to protect a group of people that have rejected him as the Messiah. It doesn't make any sense. Pastor Chris Rosebro is our guest. When we come back, we'll hear from Tiff Shuttlesworth on the removing of restraint on the Antichrist. Martin Luther on Mental Health, Practical Advice for Christians Today, is the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for October. It's written by Lutheran layman Dr. Stephen Saunders, professor of psychology at Marquette University. Martin Luther on Mental Health is published by Concordia Publishing House. Their phone number, 1-800-325-3040, or learn more at issuesetc.org. The Issues Etc. Book of the Month for October, Martin Luther on Mental Health. Our Christian faith is under constant attack, and we must be proactive in keeping our children in the church. At Faith Lutheran School in Plano, Texas, we believe that an education rooted in God's Word is one that stands against the very gates of hell. Nothing in this world is more important. Offering a rigorous classical Lutheran education, we provide in-person and live online remote learning opportunities for preschool through grade 12. To learn more, visit flsplano.org, flsplano.org. Christ-centered, cross-focused, you're listening to Issues Etc. Christological My friends, Jesus comes only for sinners. Historical I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by... Sacramental. Take and eat. This is the true body of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, given unto death for your sins. To find a Christological, historical, and sacramental church near you, go to issuesetc.org and click Find a Church.
Welcome back. Chris Roseboro, Fighting for the Faith, is our guest. It's This Week in Pop Christianity. We're getting his response to evangelical reaction to the Israel-Hamas war. Chris, what's up next from Tiff Shuttlesworth? So his next bit is he's going to legitimately then talk about why the church needs to be raptured and it's it this is the first time i've ever actually heard this argument but it has to do with removing the restraints that are currently on the devil so the antichrist cannot be revealed and the tribulation cannot begin and these final wars of prophecy will not be fully released until the power that restrains them is removed that's good news can i hear an amen and the Bible talks about that restraining power on earth in 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 6 through 8. You know what is holding him back, the Bible said, speaking of the Antichrist. For he can be revealed only when his time comes. For this lawlessness is already at work secretly, and it will remain secret until the one who is holding it back steps out of the way. Then the man of lawlessness will be revealed. Paul writing to that brand new group of Christians in Thessalonica tells them that these end time events and the revelation of the Antichrist, that one world leader who will cause a one world government with a one world monetary system, a one world religion, and a one world military power to police and enforce the severe and barbaric mandates, the Bible said he cannot be revealed. The final events of the tribulation cannot take place until something that is restraining the evil and the wickedness in this world is removed. Since the restrainer is holding back the promotion of the Antichrist, we know that the restrainer has greater power and greater authority than the Antichrist and the global world order. Since the restrainer steps out of the way, the restrainer has to be removable. Paul wrote to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 3 and 16, and he said, don't you realize that all of you together, speaking to believers, all of you together are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God lives in you. The true church is not a building. The true church is not a denomination. The true church is not a man-made organization. The true church is spirit-filled believers who have put their faith in Christ and are living ready for his soon return. The corporate church is the most prolific force in the world that the Holy Spirit uses, both in word and in deed, we are restraining the full release of wickedness and evil that is in the world. If you think things are bad now, wait until the rapture takes place. Imagine what the world will be like when the Spirit-filled church and all believers are taken from society. There's a kernel of truth in this, not in his rapture scenario, but God is restraining the evil of the world for the sake of his church, isn't he? Absolutely. And that was the point that Paul was making. But you'll note that God is the one who is restraining Satan. 
and those restraints make it possible for us to continue to preach the gospel to all nations, to proclaim Christ and him crucified for our sins. If it weren't for God's restraining hand of evil, the world would just break out into complete chaos, is the best way I can put it. But you'll note that his justification for the doctrine of the rapture is not actually based upon a biblical text that says that God's going to cause the church to disappear and and they'll miss the last seven years of the tribulation. It's based upon him reading the rapture into this restrainer text from 2 Thessalonians and saying that the church is the thing that is restraining Satan, not God. The church is. And that once the church is out of the way, then all hell is going to break loose because it's the church that's been restraining Satan all along. But that is absolutely patently false. And so, unfortunately, the very ugly, horrible war that has begun in Israel and bleakly looks like it's going to drag out for a long period of time with a lot more death and destruction coming. It has got all the evangelicals and the dispensationalists and those who buy into this premillennial eschatology, it has got them on high alert. And unfortunately, they're twisting the scriptures and creating an anticipation for people that is not biblically warranted if they would actually correctly handle these biblical texts. Like I said earlier, Christ warned us that there would be wars and rumors of wars, but he says not to really let that alarm you. Those things are normal and have taken place throughout history. And I would note that the current status of planet Earth compared to like my grandparents' generation is exceedingly peaceful in comparison. My grandparents were the ones who went through the Great Depression and then also into World War II. Their parents before them went through World War I. The relative peace that we are experiencing on planet Earth is wonderful compared to what generations before us have gone through, and yet Christ didn't return then. So I would caution people to not listen to these people who are making it sound like Christ's return is imminent as a result of what's taking place in Israel. Instead, they should pray to the God of peace that he would restore peace to that region and that saner minds would find a better solution than war, which just absolutely destroys everybody involved in it. Victor or conquered, it doesn't matter. War is is a horrible thing, and it's a result of our fall into sin, and should point us to the fact that we are in great need of the one who bled and died for all of our sins, and who upon his return will end all wars. And the first order of business in the new earth is that we're going to beat our swords into plowshares, a promise that in the world to come that Christ has won for us by his victorious death on the cross, is that we will no longer have to worry about wars in that world to come. In Romans 11, St. Paul begins by asking the question, did God reject his people? And he says, by no means. And then he ends that chapter by saying that Israel's apostasy was to bring about the conversion of the Gentiles and that God, in a great mystery, he says, will show mercy to Israel. What are your thoughts there? Absolutely. So we embrace what Paul has written here, but rightly understood. There's a great caution there in Romans 11 to us Gentiles, and that is is that we don't look with arrogance on those branches whom God has broken off of Israel because of their apostasy. In fact, that warning echoes several times in that chapter. But we would note that 
Christ specifically says to the Apostle Paul, God makes it clear that their apostasy has opened up the ability for us Gentiles to be grafted into Israel, even though we are wild olive branches. And then it says this, note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in God's kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even if they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and then grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back in to their own olive tree? So lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come, and in this way all Israel will be saved. It is written, the deliverer will come from Zion and he will banish all ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take take away their sins. As regards to the gospel, then they are enemies for your sake. But as to regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts of God and the calling of God are irrevocable. And so, beautiful text, but one that soberly calls us to recognize that as Christians, we must recognize that although they are in rebellion against Christ, their true Messiah, the one prophesied by the prophets and promised, that God still holds them in a beloved state for the sake of their forefathers, for the sake of the patriarchs, and that he is able to graft them in again. And so our prayer for Israel, not only that the war that that is currently ravaging that region would come to an end, but we prayed that their war against the Messiah would be brought to an end, and that they would have that same gift that we've been given, penitent faith in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, so that they can be grafted back into the olive tree that they were broken off of because of their unbelief. Pastor Chris Rosebro is pastor of Consfinger Lutheran Church in Oslo, Minnesota. He's creator and host of the YouTube channel Fighting for the Faith. Be sure to watch Fighting for the Faith this weekend. We'll post a link at our website, issuesetc.org. Click Talk On Demand Archives. Chris, thank you. Thank you, Todd. Issues Etc. has been brought to you in part this week by Luther Academy. Luther Academy serves Lutheran pastors to the ends of the earth. For more information on this confessional Lutheran worldwide mission outreach, visit lutheracademy.com, lutheracademy.com. Next week on Issues Etc., we'll talk with Dr. Rosaria Butterfield, about five lies of our anti-Christian age. We'll have pastors Brian Wolfmiller and Brian Ketchelmeyer respond to your unanswered Bible questions. We'll discuss the expulsion of the Canaanites with Dr. Tom Egger, and we'll visit with Dr. Stephen Saunders, author of our book of the month, Martin Luther on Mental Health. I'm Todd Wilkin. Go to church on Sunday. Thanks for listening to Issues Etc. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., P.O. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc., is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio.